0: All right, before we get started, let's make sure we're in fellowship, so we'll have a few moments of silent prayer, then I'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for the great opportunity we have to study your word, that we have the completed canon of scripture, that it has been made available to each and every one of us, that we can have our own copies of your Word that we can study them that we can uh, that we have God the Holy Spirit who teaches us that there's so much information that is available today for every believer that it's just it 's just overwhelming and we thank you that we have such a rich opportunity but it's also a sign of judgment and condemnation that we live in a world where there's so much truth available, and yet it's a time when so many people reject it either. Uh, formally rejected or they just informally rejected by the fact that uh, they don't really take the time to make it a priority to study your word and to make it a part of their life and their thinking Father I thank you for each one here this evening for their desire to know your word and to put it into practice in their life to change the way they think that we can think biblically about the things that go on in our own lives and that we can live a life that brings glory and honor to you we pray that you would help us to understand the things we study, that we may more consistently honor you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We're studying how to know the will of God. We started this last time as sort of an interlude in our study of, of uh, Jacob because we see specific guidance from God taking place in the life of uh, Jacob. Did I hear a chime? No? What? I didn't hear it, okay. <laughs> I thought maybe God was calling. You never know. <laughs> people get all kinds of funny ideas about how to know God's will and divine guidance. And over the process of time, of course, people have uh, developed different views. And as we go forward in church history, where different doctrines come to be understood with greater clarity. and Certain words and verbiage that sometimes have been used are probably ought not to be used because of the nature of our culture, because of things that are going on in the world around us. Other times we come to a realization that perhaps some of the words that we've used aren't the best words. And biblically they're not used that way. And one of those words is the leading of the Holy Spirit. The leading of the Holy Spirit. In Romans 8... 14 and Galatians 5.18 doesn't refer to divine guidance. And we'll study that on Thursday night. See, that's just a great little hook to get everybody back on Thursday night. We'll get into that Thursday night, and that dovetails with what we've been uh, addressing there in terms of the pressures on the individual believer from both the both uh, the world rationalistic, empirical worldview on the one hand, a mystical type of worldview on the other hand, and see when, when people are coming out of either one of those kinds of worldviews and then they come to the Scriptures and they interpret it within that grid, then it leads to slight misinterpretations one way or the other. And this has always happened down through church history. I was reading today, doing some study on the whole issue of of Calvinism and arminianism and and uh, free will and the soul, and most people want to articulate those debates on the will of man and the sovereignty of God in terms of uh, historical Calvinism or Arminianism. Most folks don't know that that goes back to an even earlier debate that occurred between Augustine, who was the Bishop of Hippo in the about the fourth uh, fifth century uh, a d and a British monk by the name of Pelagius. And that grew out of certain influences that took place in the early church in the uh, late 2nd and early 3rd century as Platonism and then later Neoplatonism began to influence the thinking of the the major theologians, specifically a man by the name of Origen, as well as several others. Clement of Alexandria was another one, and it also influenced uh, Augustine later on. Those were such major thinkers, and they were so influential in the early church that it literally took a thousand years or more to begin to divest the church of the garbage that they... Uh, brought into uh, theological thinking in Christianity. And the vestiges of that are still with us. I mean, you can go to some churches here in town, you've got amillennialists and covenant theologians, and, and they, they can trace their heritage, the way they think about certain passages, and using an allegorical or a non-literal interpretation of prophecy back to origin. So we still deal with these problems today. And so uh, there's, there's always these... Misunderstandings And one, one area that I started last week is just on the issue of divine guidance. How do we know God's will? How does God direct us? How do we face the issues of life and say, what is God's will for my life? So last time I started off with some introduction, and I'm just going to summarize it. We had nine points last time. I'm not going to review the nine points tonight. If you want to get all nine of them, listen to the tape last week. I'll just summarize them. Uh, often, the way that the will of God and the knowledge of the will of God and divine guidance is presented in many many cases is that you need to learn to live in the center of god's will that God has a specific will and plan for your life uh, a geographical will uh, his will professionally. His will in terms of only one particular person uh, that is right for you to marry, uh, only one particular right job for you, uh, dare I say even one right pastor or one right church. All of this boils down to this idea that there's only one specific will of God for you in all of these different areas. And if you miss it, and if you make the wrong decision, or if that other person makes the wrong decision, then, well, then you're just toast. You're just, you're just going to miss out on God's best for your life and you're just never going to experience it because that woman married some loser or that guy married some uh, girlfriend of his from high school instead of waiting around till college or uh, that, that man who was supposed to be your right pastor decided to, to leave his wife and chase some sweet young thing or whatever it is, now you're hung out to dry. So you see, there's basic problems with these, the all these different kind of views. I remember on years ago talking with uh, Charlie Clough, and part of and and he had a guy in his church who was getting his Ph.D. Uh, at uh, Texas Tech in early 20th century literature, and he pointed out that one of the things that dominated uh, fictional literature at the end of the 19th century and early couple of decades two or three decades in the 20th century was this platonic idea that there was one ideal mate now as soon as i use that word ideal if you know anything about philosophy what ought to come to your mind (laughs) we have direct revelation again tonight (laughs) another phone ringing what ought to come to your mind when you hear that word ideal What ought to come to your mind is Platonism. It's just plagued us down through the centuries that, that, you know, we even talk about certain kinds of relationships as platonic, don't we? Well, that's just a platonic relationship. Or we talk about this ideal woman or this ideal man, this ideal marriage. And that dominated the thinking in, in America, and it was part of a thro- uh, of a return to romanticism that occurred at the, in reaction to uh, uh, industrialism and uh, liberalism that was dominating things at the end of the 19th and early 20th century. And so all of this entered into and has an effect on Christianity, and there's all kinds of people who have... I at times taught these kinds of things down through church history. The question is, does the Bible teach it? And the question people need to ask is, where in the world in the Bible do you get this particular doctrine? Give me some verses. It may not state it specifically like the Trinity, but at least you can give me five verses, and if I put those five verses together I can see the conclusion. So we have to address this. What what is the way the Bible presents these these facts to us in making decisions is there just one and only dot that we have to live on x marks the spot and you got to find that and if you take that out to its logical conclusion you have a right job you have a a right house you have a right dog you have a right (laughs) cat nobody has a right cat i don't believe in that (laughs) you know you have a right kid but oops some of us didn't get the right kid (laughs) So the contrasting view is the view that teaches that God, God has given us doctrine and we make choices on the basis of the doctrine in our soul that, and that emphasizes personal responsibility for making decisions. See, in the other view, what you end up doing often is blaming God for the decision. I have to get, wait for God to tell me exactly what Person or what job or what school or, or what car to buy or whether to put on my, my Nikes or my Adidas this morning. I mean, you've got to lev- take it all the way out to its logical conclusion. What is the right thing for me to do today? And then when you get that liver quiver and God tells you it's this one or it's that one, and if there's a problem and it doesn't work out, whose fault is it? It's not my fault now. I didn't make a bad decision. It was God's fault. That was God's will. And so we wrap it up in this uh, holier-than-thou terminology, sanctify the bad decision by saying that was God's will, and God just gets blamed for our poor decisions. Now, of course, we all know that sometimes as God, and, and I'm not saying God doesn't direct or lead us, but it is... It is covert rather than overt. Now, for those of you who don't understand computers, this is going to go right past you. But the Holy Spirit and God's direction in our life is often like some of those programs we have that are running in the background on our computer. Those of you who are computer guys understand what I'm talking about, that when you start up your computer, there are various things that are running in the background. You don't have any idea what's going on, and you don't see it, but they're directing the decision making that's going on in the processor in your computer but it's not what's on this you're making decisions and choices but there's things going on in the background that are guiding directing and overseeing the process and that's how God God's will operates. so we began last time by just trying to define some terms and the first term was God's sovereign will that's one category in the Bible that God has a sovereign will this is also known as his decretive will this is also includes his permissive will because his sovereign will is his decision of what will take place in human history. And we don't know what that is. We don't know what his sovereign will includes or what it excludes until events happen. Then we have a second category called God's moral or revealed will. And in God's moral or revealed will, of course, we have the mandates in the scriptures, the thou shalt and the prohibitions that thou shalt not. We have the emphasis on studying the Scripture, get praying without ceasing, giving thanks in all things. All of this describes the boundaries of God's revealed will, so that if you're walking by the Spirit, you're filled with the Spirit, you are speaking all things in love, you are loving one another as Christ loved the church, you are making a priority out of the knowledge of God's Word, you are giving thanks for all things, then whatever decisions you make within that circle is God's will. When you get out of fellowship and you're walking according to the sin nature... Nothing you do is God's will. Because everything you do, no matter how good it is, no matter how wonderful it is, whether that includes getting up in the morning, praying for 30 minutes, memorizing Scripture, reading your Bible, uh, witnessing to people. But if you're out of fellowship, it's all what? It's all the work of the flesh. And that's not God's will. So the issue is walking by means of the Spirit within the framework of the uh, clear statements in scripture describing god's moral and revealed will, and then it's okay then you don't have to then you evaluate uh your decisions and you look at resources that god gives you and and uh, you look at the how how the most uh, uh responsible ways are that you utilize your the resources that God gives you the money your time uh your energy your gifts. And whatever you do then, as long as you're in fellowship, walking by the Spirit, giving thanks for all things, all those other commandments, loving your wife, being submissive to your uh, husband, all those things, then you are in God's will. It makes it real simple. It's You don't have to always be concerned about finding that X marks the spot and hoping that God will uh, reveal it to you. So we have God's sovereign will, which... Includes both sin, the existence of sin and evil and includes the permissive will to allow free creatures to make bad decisions. But, and then we have God's moral will, which d- describes uh, what he's revealed. The circles overlap because there is are some area that, where God's sovereign will includes his moral will. But there are areas in God's sovereign will that are outside of his revealed will and that's his permissive will. He allows sin to take place. He allows you to disobey the thou shalt or the thou shalt not. So we concluded by saying that the specifics of God's decreed will are secret, unrevealed, and unknown. You, you can't know them, you can't figure it out. Whatever happens was what was in God's revealed or what was in God's decreed will. They can't be known until after the fact. You can't outguess God. You can't try to play games. You know, when you were a kid, you'd say, well, maybe God wanted me to do this. And so you try to do... I remember doing silly things like that when I was a kid. And then you realize whatever you do is what God decreed. So you can't outguess Him. Human history is the outworking of God's sovereign decree. We can only know the specifics of His revealed or moral will. If revelation has ceased then there's no more revelation of His will. You have to rely upon the Scriptures and make those decisions that are consistent with the precepts, mandates, and prohibitions of the Word of God. Since we can only know the specifics of God's revealed or moral will before the fact, questions about the will of God relate only to what? Revealed information. So when people start asking questions, should I go to college, should I not go to college, should I go to tech school, should I major in this, major in that, should I go to Texas A&M or Texas Tech or University of Texas, then as long as they're in a place where they can learn the Word of God, where there's a local church they can be involved in, where they can be part of the body of Christ, where they can grow and mature as a believer, where they're not going to put their spiritual life in jeopardy because of a, a decision that they make as to where they go. For example, if they were to go to the uh, uh, University of Utah, they might have a problem. Where are they going to get their spiritual food? Where are they going to grow? That that puts may put, if they go to, oh, dare I say at Harvard or Yale or... Uh, some other Brown Brown's the most liberal school in the whole country if you didn't know that that's located in Providence, Rhode Island and there's not one registered Republican on the entire faculty of Brown right? right not one registered Republican I mean gee probably not one Christian on the whole faculty either truth were known now this class, what I want to look at is examples from the Scripture. How did people go about making decisions? How did God reveal His will? What are the dynamics of decision making that we get from Biblical uh, situations and Biblical examples? And so the first example I want to go to is the, is one of the most obvious ones, and that is in Judges chapter 6. Judges chapter 6. You, you, just about any time, I remember when I was Floating around, going to different Bible classes and listening to different teachers. And there was a, uh, I went to a, uh, a Bible class over at Spring Branch Community Church. And they were looking for a new uh, assistant pastor. And so they were interviewing this guy from Dallas Seminary. And he came in and he gave a message on how to know the will of God. And I think I was more confused when he got through than when I started and and I was at that age where I was about twenty two or twenty three and I was saying, how do I know whether God wants me to go to seminary or not how do you, how do I know what God wants me to do and so i w- I was really interested in what he said, of course he took uh, he, he took Jonah as his paradigm for how to know the word of, the the will of God, and as I look back on it. Uh, he needed to spend a couple more years in seminary. Okay, Judges chapter 6. This is Gideon. Gideon is often misused in uh, teaching on how to know the will of God because people go to the latter part of the episode that begins in verse 36 in Judges 6.36 and they use the putting out of the fleece as a way of trying to determine what God's will was. So in Judges 6.36 we read, So Gideon said to God, If you will save Israel by my hand as you have said. Now the key interpretive phrase there, if you haven't taken the time to look at the context and to study the first 35 verses of the chapter, which would keep you from misinterpreting this, is that one little phrase that Gideon said, as you have said, indicating that God has already revealed to Gideon what He wants him to do. Okay? So the putting out of the fleece isn't to discover what God wants him to do because he has already been told by God by not only direct revelation, but by a theophany of the angel of Yahweh who had appeared to him and given him instructions. And so as he sets this thing up in verse 36, he says, If you will save Israel by my hand as you have said, look, I shall put a fleece of wool on the threshing floor. If there's dew on the fleece only and, not on, and it's dry on the ground, then I will know that you will save Israel by my hand as you have said. That's, notice that's the second time we've seen that phrase. And it was so, when he rose early the next morning, squeezed the fleece together, he wrung the dew out of the fleece, and there was a bowl full of water. Now notice he he has twice so far as qu- made the statement, as you have said. So what was it that God said? Turn back earlier in the chapter to verse 11. Now the situation here is that the uh, Israelites continue to disobey God. They go through these cycles of disobedience and then divine discipline, and finally they just get so miserable from the divine discipline of foreign conquerors coming in and and uh, stealing all of their produce and all of their goods and uh, everything that they finally turn to the God to God and cry out that God would send them a deliverer. So they have cried out for a deliverer, and God sent them a sent them a prophet back in verse 8 uh, to remind them of what the issues are and that they need to uh, obey God's voice which they have not done and nevertheless despite the fact that they're continuing their compromise they're continuing to live in moral relativism which is the theme of the book of Judges that everyone did what was right in their own eyes how contemporary if you haven't listened to the Judges series let me give a little commercial here you need to go listen to the Judges series, download it, order the tapes, go through it, because I, I still think it's one of the most important books that needs to be studied in this day and age because it's all about moral relativism and what happens to a culture that gets into moral relativism and spiritual relativism and goes into cultural decline. It's a, it's a tremendous book for a lot of implications for, for politics, for leadership for what happens in local churches and I encourage you to listen to that series if you haven't listened to it so God is going to be gracious and despite the fact that they have not uh, not turned to him they've just cried out for deliverance sort of like a spanked child who's awfully sorry they got caught but not sorry they did it they're uh, they're ready to, to turn to God but only because they're tired of getting getting uh, Uh, run over by the Midianites at every harvest so the angel of the Lord comes to Gideon in verse 11 sat under the terebinth tree in Ophrah which belonged to Joash the Abizrite this was a small clan in the tribe of Benjamin while his son Gideon threshed wheat in the wine press and the angel of, of Yahweh appeared to him and said to him the Lord is with you you mighty man of valor now the picture here is that the Midianite uh, uh, confederacy keeps sweeping in every harvest and stealing everything and so here you have Gideon who's hiding out in the wine press to see if he can just thresh out a few things he is not the picture of a valiant warrior he is the picture of a coward who isn't trusting God who's hiding out hoping that he can get away with keeping a little bit of his produce instead of losing it to the enemy and Gideon said to him, "Oh, my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened? Where are all his miracles, which our fathers told us about, saying, didn't the Lord bring us up from Egypt? He's the skeptic. You know, if God is really there, why isn't he delivering us like he did back at the Exodus? Why isn't he giving us victory over the enemies like he did with Joshua at Jericho and later at Ai and and uh, defeating all these other enemies? If If there really is a God, why isn't he protecting us anymore and that's his, his question he is not the picture of faith here now I want to I'll come back to that in a minute because there's a tremendous encouragement for us in all this so he's he's complaining about the fact that God really doesn't care anymore and then in verse 14 it says then the Lord turned to him now the first rule in Bible study is observation And what you what you should observe at this point is that the personage who has been talking to Gideon up to this point has been referred to as the angel of Yahweh, and now the person is referred to as Yahweh, which is one of the strongest passages to show that the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament is not an angel but is identified as Yahweh. And since he has seen the angel of the Lord. And John 1 says that no one has seen uh, God at any time. The only begotten has revealed him. We put two and two together and realize that the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament was the pre-incarnate Lord Jesus Christ. And so the Lord Jesus Christ has appeared here and turns to him and says, Go in this might of yours, and you shall save Israel from the hand of the Midianites. Have I not sent you? And he says to him, "Oh my Lord, how can I save Israel? I mean, I'm from the smallest clan. I'm from the smallest family. I mean, I don't. Ha- you get all my cousins together, and we can. We don't even fill up a room." And the Lord says, "Surely I will be with you. You shall defeat the Midianites as one man." This is a promise from God to Gideon. He's giving him personal direction. We call this special revelation. This is a form of special revelation called a theophany. There are different kinds of special revelation in the Old Testament. Sometimes God just spoke audibly. Sometimes he appeared in dreams or visions. And sometimes he appeared as uh, he did here as the angel of the Lord in a theophany. So it gives specific uh, direction to Gideon and then tells him what to do and says, okay, the first thing you have to do is you if you are going to deliver Israel, and part of the problem is their moral compromise, you have to deal with the moral and spiritual compromise in your own family, and you have to sanctify your own household. And your father's got a, uh, a huge altar that he has built to Baal, and you have to destroy that. it's it's comparable to confession of sin and sanctification in other words you have to clean up the mess that's going on in your own family first and then we will take you to the next level but the point that I want to make here in terms of knowing the will of God is that God's made it very clear hasn't he that God has chosen Gideon for this particular task it's not a task that he wanted it's one that he wants to avoid so when he starts putting out the fleece to put, set up these circumstances that, God, if you really want me to do this, then let's create a set of circumstances that are somewhat difficult to perform, and if that happens, then I'll know it's your will. See, he's, he's not even trying to get confirmation of God's will. He's trying to come up with an impossibility so that he can avoid God's will. See he doesn't really believe that this can happen, so he's he's setting out the fleece here, and the first thing is okay, they'll be dew on the fleece, but the ground around it's going to be dry well, after that happens, he thinks, well, maybe that was pretty simple to do we now we're going to reverse it, and I'm going to put the fleece out and if the fleece is dry and the ground is wet now that 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 he can't figure out how that could happen so he's he's coming up with these these, uh, and, and you've probably done this if you've been a Christian more than a couple of years. So You know God wants you to do something, and, and you try to avoid it, and you think, well, give me a sign. And that's, what are you asking for? You're asking for special revelation. Well, special revelation ceased with the uh, closing of the canon. And God has given us all the information we need in order to perform his will. We don't need anything else. It's sufficient. That's what sufficient means. It's enough. So Gideon is not an example of how to know God's will, at least in the episode of the fleece. But he is an example in that he is given specific direction by God as to what to do. And later on, as he goes into battle against the Midianites, God is going to give him, as he did earlier with Joshua, specific strategy As to how to defeat the enemy. And it's not a strategy that you would find in Sun Tzu or in uh, uh, Clausewitz or any other military uh, book on military strategy. It's let's get down to the fewest number possible. Get down to 300. Actually, we're going against 135,000. He started with 30,000. God whittled him down to 300. Said, now we're going to demonstrate that the victory is the Lord's. So in the process he learned something about uh, doing God's work God's way and it's not according to the presuppositions of uh, human reason or empiricism but it's according to the basis of divine revelation. So Gideon is not an example, at least putting out the fleece, is not an example of how to test the waters, how to uh, cast lots or draw straws or any of the other things people do to say, okay, if God really wants me to do this, then this will happen. Uh, what we're supposed to do is to be obedient to the special revelation that God has given. Now, the other person that people always go to when they're going to preach on knowing God's will is Jonah. You knew we would get there eventually. Jonah. Now, Jonah, again, is not a book that is written to tell people how to know the will of God. But Jonah is definitely a book that gives us information about how to know uh, God's will. And we know it because God gives specific revelation. Once again, direct revelation comes from God to Jonah. I'll find it in just a minute. There we go. I think in this... This Bible Jonah's like one page, and I keep the pages keep keep sticking together. And well, there we go. Okay. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the son of Amittai, saying, "Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness has come up before me." Now God has a specific geographical direction for Jonah at this time. And there are times in our lives when God does want us in a specific place at a specific time. And God will get us there. That's the lesson from Jonah. Because no matter how much Jonah wants to avoid the assignment and not go where God wants him to be, he ends up being right exactly where God wants him to be geographically. Now the principle from that is that that when you as a believer positive to the Lord, walking by the Spirit, filled with the Spirit, making a tough decision in life, whether to work for this company and go to Dallas or that company and go to Austin or some other company and go to uh, Cambridge, Massachusetts, and you have to work through a decision-making process, and you're thinking, well, where's the place God really wants me? If, for some reason, God truly does have a geographical plan for you and want you in cambridge massachusetts and you choose to go to dallas because you just don't know how you can live up there amongst the heathen yankee then guess what's going to happen god will so superintend the circumstances that that door is going to shut down in dallas and the door will still be open the opportunity will still be there for you to go to massachusetts that's how god works if you're doing all the right things in the decision-making process, and God truly does want you in one specific place, then you're, you can't avoid it. God will get you there. He's not going to write it in handwriting across the sky. You're not going to uh, be able to go out to your favorite restaurant and buy a piece of chocolate cake and hope that it somehow it's written in the icing on the chocolate cake and give you the answer. But God will... Make sure that as you go through the process, if he truly does want you someplace, then all the other options will shut down and you'll end up in that particular location, in that particular place. And that's what happens with with Jonah. We are all pretty much familiar with this story. God tells Jonah to go to Nineveh, and he gives him a specific responsibility to go to Nineveh. But in verse 3... Jonah, knowing the will of God, wants to do just the opposite. Jonah rose up to flee to Tarshish. Now, if you don't have a a good map in your mind of of the ancient world, Nineveh was to the east of of the northern kingdom of Israel. Nineveh was about 500 miles to the east. Tarshish is about 1,000 to 1,500 miles due west. And so he just wanted to go as far as and as fast as he could to get away from the direction where God wanted him to go, so he rose up to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. What doctrine does that bring to mind? Omnipresence. Where are we? David said it in the Psalm: "Where can I go if I rise up to heaven? You are there. If I if I go down to Sheol, behold, you are there." You can't get away from the presence of God. Therefore, you can't avoid god's specific will for your life, if there is a specific will for for your life and a specific decision, God will make sure that it is it is brought uh, brought about and he does that with Jonah he works out the circumstances so that there's a storm Jonah gets thrown uh, over uh, the side of the boat, and a large fish, not a whale a whales don't have uh, throats large enough to swallow a human you need to know that uh, but there are a number of large fish that can and have swallowed humans whole and there have been examples of whalers who have uh, thro- uh, fallen overboard and been swallowed by different types of fish and then a day or two later they'll find the fish cut them open and they come out the interesting thing is that that in the two or three instances when this has occurred the stomach acids have had an interesting effect on the individual they're bleached white their hair is bleached white their skin they, they look like a walking ghost they'll scare the devil out of you and you can just imagine what Jonah looked like after three days in the belly of the, of the fish where the stomach acids have just bleached him uh, white as he could be and he comes walking into the uh, streets of Nineveh, announcing that God is about to bring judgment upon the city, of, city of Nineveh. So see, God multitasks. Not only did he have a good, a good way to, to transport Jonah back from the middle of the Mediterranean back to uh, the uh, western sh- or the eastern shore of the Mediterranean, but at the same time he was creating a scenario where people would want to pay attention and be attracted uh, uh, where he would create an attention grabber for, for Jonah so God is a, the original multitasker now then we've also in our as a third example of knowing the will of God we've seen in our study of Genesis Abraham where Abraham is living his life he's, he's living according to whatever revelation God has given him and he is worshipping the Lord down in Ur of the Chaldees and then God appears to him and give him direction. Now we're going to get there in a couple of weeks, but I just uh, I finally circled and highlighted this verse because I kept running across it, but I never could find it when I needed it. And right now I've got to see if I can find it again. But whenever we study the life of Abraham and his background in Ur of the Chaldees, everybody goes to that verse over in. Uh, over in Joshua that talks about the fact that, that Abraham came out from uh, his ancestors who were moon worshipers. And so everybody gets the idea that, that Abraham just comes out of this family and they're all pagan except for him. So how did he come to know the truth? Well, they were moon worshipers but they were worshiping a bunch of different gods including the true God. In Genesis 31, 53... Uh, Laban is talking to Jacob and they're creating a covenant this is the end of the chapter that we're just about to start in the next couple of weeks and he makes the statement the God of Abraham the God of Nahor who is Abraham's father and and Laban's uh, grandfather and the God of their father judge between us the God of their father was Terah This is a clear indication that Abraham's father and his family may have come out of an environment of moon worshipers and and, uh, astrologers and uh, caught up in the uh, uh, worship of the Chaldean Pantheon, which is associated with the stars, but they also knew who the god of the Bible was, and they worshiped him. So he doesn't come out of the pure pagan background that nearly everybody mentions. And and when I first started studying Abraham, I had read through this and I uh, had noted that verse. And I'll tell you, commentary after commentary, people don't ignore that verse or they're not aware of its presence. But it has a tremendous impact. So here's Abraham. He's living for 60 or 70 years of his life in Ur the Chaldees. And then one day God says, now I've got a specific plan for your life. I haven't had a specific plan Plan up to now. You could have lived in Ur, you could have moved wherever you wanted to, but now I have a specific plan for your life, and I want you to get out of your country, and I want you to leave your family, and I want you to go to a land that I'm going to show you. You don't know where you're going, but you have to trust me. Well, Abraham, as we've seen in our study, did not fully obey God. God's will was leave your family and let's go. Well, he didn't leave his father. took his father with him and took his nephew, uh, Lot, with him. And they uh, headed out to Haran. They got to Aramea and they got halfway to the promised land and stopped for about 15 years before they moved on. So God, in his permissive will, allowed Abraham to be, what? Partially obedient. It also meant that it was going to uh, Postpone the time of the blessing in Abraham's life because when we uh, are in carnality and we're uh, violating the moral and the revealed will of God it slows down the it slows down the process so Abraham is an example of God's directive will and we see the same thing occurring in our passage in uh, Jeremiah, uh, in genesis thirty one uh, going back to Genesis 28 when Jacob is leaving the land and God appeared to him again. It's a theophany, but in, the, in a vision. And he sees this this ladder that goes from earth to heaven or stairway that goes to heaven and the angels ascending and descending and God tells him, wherever you go, I'm going to be with you. And the implication there is wherever you go, not as long as you go to my uh, specific places. He, God doesn't specify where He is supposed to go. It's just that wherever He goes, God will be with Him. And when the time comes for, Ab- for I mean for uh, Jacob to return to the land, in chapter thirty-one, God is going to appear to him in Gen- uh, Genesis thirty-one-three. Then the Lord said to Jacob, "Return to the land of your fathers and to your family." and I will be with you. It's a direct correlation to what he said in Genesis 28 at Bethel when uh, Jacob was on his way out of the land. God has protected him. He's provided for him. He has blessed him wherever he went and now it's time to go home. But when it was time to leave and when it was time to come home, he knew it because there was special revelation. How did he know God's will for his life? God gave him special revelation. Special revelation isn't going on today, and so we can't follow that as an example. Now those are some Old Testament examples. Let's turn to the New Testament, to Acts chapter 10, and look at a couple of New Testament examples. Acts chapter 10. This is a famous... Story in the midst of the transition from a Jewish oriented early church to a Gentile early church and Gen- Acts chapter 10 marks that transition when Peter who up to this point has been the predominant apostle he is the leader of the apostles the church is centered in Jerusalem uh, 95% of the believers are Jews but now there's going to be a shift to take place and it is foreshadowed by the fact that the apostle to the Gentiles is saved in the previous chapter. So the first seven or eight chapters focus on Peter, then Paul comes in and you have a transition period where it's uh, where you hear about Peter and then Paul and then Peter and then Paul and then, Peter and then Peter and then just Paul from then on out. So God is going to give direction to Peter to take the gospel to Gentiles. Now we see Peter here is just a a, a, a still an uptight, somewhat racist Jew who doesn't want to go into even a Gentile home because it's afraid he'll get out of fellowship. He'll eat the wrong thing or he'll uh, touch the wrong thing. And he's still thinking in terms of the Old Testament Mosaic law And he's still thinking in terms of all the laws related to cleanness and uncleanness. And so God uh, gives him a vision. Again, it's another form of special revelation. And he has this vision where uh, he sees heaven open up back in in Acts 10 verse 11. Heaven opens up. He, He falls into a trance in verse 10. He saw heaven open up and an object like a great sheet, bound at the four corners, descending to him and let down to the earth. In it were all kinds of four-footed animals of the earth, wild beasts, creeping things, and birds of the air. And a voice came to him and said, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. Now, let's get the background here. We don't understand what's going on. Is that in the Mosaic law, and the dietary laws it was prohibited for Jews to eat certain kinds of animals for food. And they couldn't eat wild animals and they couldn't eat birds and they, certain, certain kinds of birds and they couldn't eat uh, pork and, of course, they couldn't eat crawfish or any kind of crustacean because they're scavengers. And you always get, and, and I, every time I talk, talk on this, we have to have a little sidebar here because you're always going to run into somebody who's going to promote a diet that's a biblical diet. And you will be sanctified and holy in your eating habits, even more so because this is from the Bible. All of a sudden, the tone gets somber. And they go back to the Mosaic Law as if the Mosaic Law and the dietary laws had anything at all to do with diet or had anything at all to do with nutrition and here's why you know it didn't have anything to do with nutrition, it didn't have to do with the fact that they didn't know how to cook pork so they wouldn't get trichinosis, it didn't have anything to do with with uh, uh, not cooking shrimp or crawfish or anything well enough. It had to do with the fact that God used the dietary laws and all the cleanness and unclean, uh, un- unclean laws in the Old Testament to reinforce the fact that, that visually as training aids, that whenever you were involved or touched or participated in anything that was directly related to anything in the, in the Genesis 3 judgment on sin, then you were ceremonially unclean and you had to be, there had to be a sacrifice. In other words, if you touched a dead body, there's nothing immoral or, or unhealthy or sinful in touching a dead body. I mean, I'm sure they had morticians, and they had to do that. But if you touched a dead body, you were ceremonially unclean. If you were the uh, equivalent of the of the ambulance drivers that came to pick up somebody who had died of a heart attack, then you're going to be touching a dead body. You would be ceremonially unclean for a period of seven days and then you'd have to bring the proper sacrifices into the temple but that's not sin but it is a picture that when when a human being is involved in any of these things uh, just that sin separates from God this is a visual image that these things that are related to sin related to death for example if a woman gave birth she's ceremonially unclean for a week why? it's because the part of the penalty for for sin was that the woman is going to experience increased labor and pain in giving birth. So all these different things had to do with with something to do with with the uh, uh, the curse of Genesis three, and it's working its way out in history. So uh, the most of these animals that we're talking about, whether it's pigs or whether it's uh, jackals or whether it's uh, crawfish or catfish, that these. Are scavengers, and they eat dead things. And so the, the Jews were prohibited from eating them or touching them. But now they're all on a sheet, on, on a, on a tablecloth, beautiful heavenly sheet or tablecloth comes down from heaven with all these unclean animals on there. And Peter is told, this is God's will now for you to eat all this. Now, unlike Jews today who usually can't wait to go down and have pork chops and bacon as soon as they get saved, Peter was very hesitant about this. He said, No, Lord, I've never let anything unclean touch my lips, and I'm not going to do it now. And God had to repeat himself a a couple of times, three times, before Peter was willing to rise up, kill, and eat. I think it's interesting It says, Rise, kill, and eat. Would have made the Peter crowd just just very upset because all he had probably was uh, you know a dull knife. He, so it's it's not the easiest thing to do. So it's special revelation, but it doesn't have anything to do with health code. God doesn't anywhere here say now when you kill that pig and you start cutting up the pork chops, remember you've got to get that meat to 180 degrees. To make sure you kill that that trichinosis bacteria. He doesn't say anything about making sure that when you're when you're frying the catfish that you make sure that the that the oil's at a certain temperature or that you've uh, cleaned the catfish a certain way. There's no introduction of any new data in the history of mankind at this point related to uh, bacteria or health or nutrition. God says. In verse 15, what God has cleansed, you must not call common. It is at this instant in history that man knows that all of these things that have been unclean are now clean. Now, nutritionists may come up with all kinds of correlations and everything else, and they do that, but let me tell you don't ever do it because it's biblical. Because that's not why God did it. It had nothing whatsoever to do with diet. It had to do with theology, and only theology. It was a visual aid in understanding the, the impact of sin on mankind. So then, uh, after this, Peter has been given one form of revelation. And he's wondering within himself what this vision which he had seen meant. And behold, the men who had been sent from Cornelius made inquiry for Simon's house. So Cornelius had already been introduced earlier. He was a, a Gentile soldier, a, a centurion, and that was a God worshiper. And he's positive volition, and he wants to know more. And God is going to take Peter to him to explain the plan of salvation that Jesus had died for his sins. So when they, these Gentiles come looking for him, Peter's thinking about the vision, and the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are seeking you. So it's a specific statement by God the Holy Spirit. Here's a slide. While Peter was reflecting on the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. This is once again, once again... Special revelation. And notice the specificity. Arise, go downstairs, and accompany them without misgivings, for I have sent them myself. Now, I think it's interesting to note here that when you do have dreams and visions all throughout the Old Testament, the individual is not left to try to figure out what the dream or the vision means. It's not like you've been out contemplating your navel or like the Indian... American Indian Comanche mystics would do and take a peyote button and chew on it until they uh, were ha- hallucinated. And then they would see all of these different uh, spirit animals, power animals appear. And then they would come out and they would go and interpret the dream as to what that meant. Now, this isn't what's going on. God always, in these situations, explains what the vision or the dream means. God doesn't leave us out there to guess at what the symbols mean. And so he has the the vision of the tablecloth coming down. He's not left on his own to interpret what it means, and he is God speaks and gives the interpretation to him. But the significance of it is that the, there's no longer a distinction between Jew and Gentile. You can go to a Gentile home and you can eat and have fellowship with them, and you don't have to worry about what they're putting on the table anymore because uh, we're not under the Mosaic law anymore. So the Holy Spirit gives him uh, specific direction. Another example from Acts is in Acts chapter Acts chapter 13. So I'll turn over a couple of pages. There were in the church at Antioch certain prophets and teachers, Barnabas and Simeon, who was called Niger, and Lucius of Cyrene and Menean, who had been brought up by, with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. And while they were ministering to the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Once again, it is special revelation, and it was something that was heard by all of them. It's not, it's not a voice that is heard within the head of one of them. It was heard by all of them, and so they knew what God's specific Will was. And having prayed and fasted and laid hands on them, they sent them away. This was the beginning of the first uh, first missionary trip. Now, one other example that I want to go to is in acts chapter, Acts chapter fifteen, Acts chapter fifteen. Just one more example. This is at the Jerusalem Council. This was the first ecclesiastical gathering of church leaders. To try to resolve a doctrinal issue. And the issue here flows out of what we first saw in Acts chapter 10 with Peter, and that is well, these Gentiles are trusting Christ by the truckload. What do we need to require of them in order to be saved? Do they need to get circumcised? Do they need to come in under the Mosaic law? Do they have to follow dietary laws? What are we supposed to do? And so they all came together. Verse 6, note, it says, Now the apostles and elders came together to consider the matter. These are apostles. They're not getting together and praying and saying, Holy Spirit, speak to me and tell me what we should do here. They're coming together and they're going to look at the scriptures and they're going to discuss what Jesus taught and then they're going to make a wise decision. Based upon the doctrine that they already have, there's no direct revelation anywhere in this passage there's no special revelation. They come together to consider the matter and when there had been much dispute they 're arguing with each other you've got Peter standing up and saying one thing or well peter and stand up for a while you got uh, one stands up and says one thing, another stands up and says something else. Finally, Peter stood up and he addresses them and talks about what happened. Uh, when he went to Cornelius and everything that transpired there. Then after they listened to uh, Peter, then they were all silent and then they listened to Barnabas and Paul talk about how many Gentiles were coming to Christ as a result of their ministry in verse 12. And then James spoke and James sort of summarizes everything. And then they come to a conclusion. They come, they, they, have heard all the arguments and they come to a conclusion. Notice, the Holy Spirit doesn't speak to them. God doesn't appear to them. Nothing. They don't get inspiration. We don't have the moving of the Holy Spirit. We don't have the act of inspiration. 2 Timothy 3.16, what do we have? Verse 22. Look at, watch the verbiage here. Then it pleased the apostles and elders. They made a decision on what they thought was the best course of action in light of the data. It pleased them to send chosen men of their own company to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas, uh, namely Judas and others. To They made a decision that, okay, we've reached a conclusion here. And their conclusion was that, that uh, back in verses 19 and 20, that they wouldn't require the Gentiles to come in under the Mosaic Law, that all they would tell them was to abstain from uh, things polluted by idols, abstain from sexual immorality from things strangled and from blood all of this goes back to what? pretty much the Noahic covenant not the Mosaic law not the Abrahamic covenant but to the Noahic covenant where you were prohibited from eating uh, for drinking blood and of course uh, idolatry and sexual immorality had always been wrong so they made a decision now how do we broadcast this? Okay, let's make a decision we're going to send Uh, Paul and Barnabas and a couple of others back to Antioch to communicate our decision uh, to them and then in verse 25 24 and 25 they they express in this letter what their decision is since we have heard that some who went out from us have troubled you with words unsettling your soul there have been some troublemakers who have been trying to force circumcision it seemed good to us now you ought to underline that phrase It seemed good to us. That's how they reached the decision. They evaluated all the data and said, It seemed good to us in light of what we know from Scripture and what Jesus taught, we have come to this doctrinal conclusion. No special revelation was involved. It seemed good to us being assembled with one accord to send chosen men to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul. And then in verse 28 we read... For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these necessary things. So they're not getting any special revelation. The reference there to the Holy Spirit is the fact that the Holy Spirit has been working not overtly but covertly behind the scenes in and through their decision-making process to bring them to this conclusion as they were in fellowship, as they were studying the Word It is not a decision that is reached through special revelation, through some sort of liver quiver, some sort of inner vibration, or anything like that. And this becomes the paradigm for how decision-making is going to occur once the canon is closed, the apostles are off the scene, and all we have is the completed canon of Scripture. So that when we have decisions to make in life, what we do is we make sure we're in fellowship, we focus on the Word. We put together all of the issues. We search the Scriptures to see what God has revealed with regard to this particular uh, de- type of decision in our life. And then we make a decision that will uh, provide for the very best for us within that context. And remembering that the greatest priority is not uh, how good it looks uh, a decision looks on a resume, uh, how good that man or that woman looks, or... How, uh, how, much, uh, uh, how, how much entertainment or how much uh, activity uh, there is in that particular city. I always thought God was calling me to some place like uh, Gunnison, Colorado, where I could spend a lot of time backpacking and hiking and skiing. But God had other plans. And so you make decisions based on your spiritual life and where you're going to be fed the word the best, where you're going to be able to be involved in ministry the best, and where you're going to be able to grow to spiritual maturity. Okay, we'll come back next time and wrap up our study on how to know God's will and how God's will was made manifest in Jacob's life. Father, we thank you for this time to study your word, and we pray that you would help us to understand these things, make them a part of our decision-making process. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.